With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. The Harlem riots had taken place. People were left dead. Black soldiers had come back from World War I, and riots were all over the nation. Put them back in their place. It was there. The Langston Hughes wrote a poem about resiliency, revival, and redemption in the face of rejection. This was before the Civil Rights Movement. This was before Harry Truman desegregated the armed forces. This was before Social Security was open to African Americans. And Langston Hughes got his pen and said, let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plane seeking a home where he himself is free. Let America be the dream, the dreamer's dream. Let it be the great, strong land of love, where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme. Let any man be crushed by anyone above. It was never America to me. Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wealth, wreath. But opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. He went on to say, I am the poor white fooled and pushed apart. I am the Negro bearing slavery scars. I am the red man driven from the land. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I seek and finding only the same old stupid plan of dog eat dog, of mighty crush the weak. He goes on to say in this same poem, who said the free, not me, surely not me, the millions on relief today. The millions shot down when we strike. The millions who have nothing for our pay. For all the dreams we've dreamed, all the songs we've sung, all the hopes we've held, all the flags we've hung. The millions who have nothing for our pay except the dream that's almost dead today. Oh, let America be America again. The land that never has been yet and yet must be. A land where every man is free. The land is mine. The poor man, Indians, Negro me, who made America whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain. We must bring back our mighty dream again. Sure, call me any ugly name you choose. The steel of freedom does not stain from those who live like leeches on the people's lives. We must take back our land again. America, oh yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be out of the rack and ruin of our gangster death. 
the rape and the rot of grass and stealth of lies. We, the people, must redeem the land, the mines, the plants, the rivers, the mountains, and the endless plain, all and all the stretch of these great green states, and make America again. So, if you believe and you stood for justice on Monday, I know Tuesday came, but you ought to still stand for justice today. If you believed in love on Monday, you ought to still believe in love today. If you still believed in living wages on Monday, you ought to believe in it after Tuesday. If you believed in public education Monday, you ought to believe in it after Tuesday. If you believed in criminal justice reform and police reform and equal protection under the law, regardless of your race, your creed, or your sexuality, your principles did not die. They were not unelected. And we must make America what it must be. There's still a creator spoken of in the scriptures. It guarantees us inalienable rights. So for all those who gloat, be reminded that pride cometh before the fall. To those who want to hate, don't do it, because love and truth are more powerful and more redemptive. To those who didn't vote, don't ever sit out again. To those Democrats, stand your ground on principles of justice. Don't go along just to get along. This is not the time for the politics and playing games with the lives of the most vulnerable. This is a time for statesmen and stateswomen, not merely partisan politics. To those who call for healing, remember you can't have healing without treatment. And to the children, don't be what you have seen. Be better than what you've seen this year. Don't be racist. Don't be bullies. Don't be haters. Because you are our now and our future, both at the same time. And to the faithful, it's our time, even the more, to be in the public square, to engage nonviolently wherever we have to for the cause of love and justice. Like Samuel, we cannot mourn forever. We must still be the prophets to this nation, and we must challenge this nation until the day comes that we are one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Be revived. Be redeemed. Be resilient in spite of the rejection. America's chickens! Coming home! Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. 
I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. You just don't give up, just don't give up. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I think the past is clearly instructive for the for how uh, how we are right now. Mm-hmm. But also, the conceit of the magazine is that you can look at all of these modern phenomenon that you think are unrelated to slavery at all, and we were going to show you how they are. And so we have a story in there about traffic patterns. We have a story about why we're the only Western industrial country without universal health care, about why Americans consume so much sugar, about capitalism, about democracy. We're really trying to change the way that Americans are thinking that this was just uh, a problem of the past that we've resolved and show that it isn't. What many people don't know, and I um, point this out in my essay, is that one of the reasons we even decide to become a nation in the first place is over the issue of slavery. And had we not had slavery, we might be Canada. Mm. Uh, that one of the reasons that the founders wanted to break off from Britain is they were afraid that Britain was going to begin regulating slavery and maybe even moving towards abolishment. And we were making so much money off of slavery that the founders wanted to be able to continue it. We're not taught that when we're taught about uh, our origin stories. And not knowing that then um, really does not allow us to grapple with the nation that we really are and not just the nation that we're taught in kind of American mythology. And that, that money ends up fueling so much more of what made this country. Of course. It's not incidental that 10 of the first 12 presidents of the United States were slave owners. This is where, at that time, uh, this kind of very burgeoning nation was getting so much of its wealth and its power. It's what allows uh, this kind of ragged group of colonists to believe that they could defeat the most powerful empire in the world at that time. And it went everywhere. It was north and south. We talk about the Industrial Revolution. Where do Americans believe that the cotton that was being spun in those textile, company, or textile mills coming from was coming from enslaved people who were growing that cotton in the south? The rum industry, which was really, rum was the currency of the slave trade. That rum was being processed and sold in the United States. The banking industry that rises in New York City is rising largely to provide the mortgages and the insurance policies and to finance the slave trade. The shipbuilders are northern shipbuilders. The people who are sending voyages to Africa to bring enslaved people here are all in the north. So this was a truly national enterprise. Uh, but we prefer to think that it was just some backward southerners because that mm. is the way that we can kind of deal with our fundamental paradox at our beginning, that we were a nation built on both the inalienable rights of man and also a nation built on bondage. Yeah, and you even talk about Wall Street's name comes from something that most of us don't recognize. Absolutely. So Wall Street is called Wall Street because it was on that wall that enslaved people were bought and sold. That's been completely erased from our national memory and completely erased from the way that we think about the North. Um, at the time of the Civil War, New York City's mayor actually threatened to succeed from the Union with the South because so much money was being made off of slave-produced cotton that was being exported out of New York City. Um, it is that erasure, I think, that has prevented us from really grappling with our history and so much in modern society that we see that is still related to that. You know, you're really not something that you can dispute with facts. Uh, but the other thing is, is we, if we truly understand that black people are fully American, and so the struggle of black people to make our union actually reflect its values is not a negative thing against the country, because we are citizens who are working to make this country better for all Americans. That is something that white Americans, if 
they really believe, as they say, mm-hmm. that race doesn't matter, we're all Americans, should also be proud of embrace that story. Um, we cannot deny our past. And if you believe that 1776 matters, if you believe that our Constitution still matters, then you also have to understand that the legacy of slavery still matters. And you can't pick and choose what parts of history we think are important and which ones are. They all are important. And that narrative um, that is inclusive and honest, even if it's painful, is the only way that we can understand our times now and the only way we can move forward. I think what, if people read, for instance, a story on why we don't have universal health care, what it shows is that racism doesn't just hurt black people, that there are a lot, there are millions of white people in this country who are dying, who are sick, who are unable to pay their medical bills because we can't get past the legacy of slavery. This affects all Americans, no matter if you just got here yesterday, if mm-hmm. your family's been here 200 years, no matter what your race are. Our inability to deal with this original sin is hurting all of us, and this entire country is not the country that it could be because of it. Not just in terms of universal health care, but you can look at why we don't have universal child care, uh, why we have the stingiest parental leave, why we have um, lowest uh, ability to have people represented by unions. All of this goes back to the sentiment that if black people are going to benefit, uh, white Americans will not support it. Large numbers of white Americans. Almost everywhere it began with marches, demonstrations. Tests were in the thousands. A number of persons injured, unrecorded. At least nine persons were killed. But the most serious casualty of all was the relationship between the black man and the white man. By summer's end, the northern white was counter-marching, counter-demonstrating. And at the end of summer, white political leaders up and down the nation on all levels were voicing their concern. I've heard it said that the cause of civil rights has fallen backward in this past year. And those who are critical say that riots and violence have produced new waves of white resistance to further progress that the civil rights movement itself is rent by factionalism and extremism. And vital civil rights legislation has apparently floundered in the Congress for this session. And political candidates running on a platform of never, never have defeated good men of moderate progressive views. Now, my fellow Americans, I would be less than honest with you if I did not say that in all of this, there is some grain of truth. These guys have been in and out of trouble so much, uh, you could fill a book. But unfortunately, the Supreme Court ruling, where we have to handle these characters like daffodils, instead of the bums that they are, where we could throw them in a uh, jail where they belong, no, we have to tap them on the wrist. Now, the other problem which caused this situation is the NAACP. Their continual announcements of planned demonstrations, their continual announcements of mass meetings, has worked these people up in a frenzy, these irresponsible hoodlums, who the so-called civil civil rights workers are working in their behalf for first-class citizenship. Well, I think that the NAACP should turn right around and start doing something about demonstrating against these undesirables in their own race and nationality. I don't think I have ever seen as strong a reactionism as has occurred in Atlanta and in Georgia, I'm perfectly frank and honest about it. It has uh, upset the status quo of established voting patterns in the state of Georgia that never before had been upset. 
the state went Republican for the first time in the last presidential election. It went that way entirely on the race issue. Uh, it, uh, we will have major changes in the runoffs that are now coming up or in the general election this year. I wouldn't attempt to identify each one of them, but I would say that I have, unfortunately, I have never seen as strong a reaction amongst the uh, white citizen uh, as a, there is at the present time. I don't, really mean, I don't think it means anything. Just, we might think it means better, but to me it doesn't mean anything but just the color of my skin, really. I mean, how often do you think about being white? Not very often. I really don't think about it a lot at all. Hardly ever. It's just, it's just me. Racially, do you see yourself as a white person? No, I see myself as a person. Do you ever think about being a white person? No. Mm, probably not very often. Not really. Sometimes I got a lot of black friends. Sometimes they, we make jokes about it and everything, but... Um, not really. It doesn't matter to me whether I'm white, pink, or purple, or black. I don't care. It depends on the social situation. Sometimes I'll be the only white person in the room when it's reversed when the tables are sort of flipped. How do you identify racially? Do you see yourself as a white man? Uh, I think that everybody is equal in the eyes of the Lord. Okay. So you don't see yourself as a white person? Not as much as most people. I, uh, I think when it's all said and done, we're equal and definitely inside and outside. But I don't know if I ever considered myself white or thought about it. At one point, I'm sure I did, but I don't really have any recollection of when it was, which I think is a total reflection of whiteness, of, of never having to sort of contemplate why people treat you the way they do. To be white uh, means to be a member of a dominant racial group in a society that I consider white supremacist. And to be white in a white supremacist society, not just a racist society, because that's almost too generic, to be white in a white supremacist society is to be able to have the luxury of oblivion, to be oblivious to the injustices, to be oblivious to racial privilege, to be oblivious, frankly, to one's own identity. So it is, in a sense, to be invisible to oneself. Well, I think to be white in this culture means to deny the reality of racism. And it means, it means to deny the privilege that we have as whites. Most people who are whites don't want to accept that they are privileged because they are. People don't want to talk about being white because they know that at a deep level, even though they haven't even, some of them may not have ever talked about it with anybody or ever expressed it, they do know that they get a benefit from being white. White in this country, there, there's certain uh, advantages that come your way, and it doesn't really matter whether you want to or not, or whether you're in touch with it or not. Now I know there are um, privileges that I enjoy simply because I'm white. Every minute of my life, I'm aware of my white privilege, of the fact that I have I have a white skin and that with that white skin comes along a whole 
mess of privileges that I have, and I don't ask for them, they just are there. There are things that come to me, that belong to me, um, that I'm given and that I expect just because I'm white, that I never wonder about, ask about, discuss. Uh, and that's the power of it is that uh, the privilege of expecting that I'm going to go to good schools and that I'm going to have choices no matter what, that there will always be a choice that will be probably pretty reasonable, that will work out pretty well for me. To me it's about privilege. A lot of, a lot of people get to walk around thinking that we live in a meritocracy and thinking that their own hard work is the only thing that's you know, responsible for their achievements. Um, I think that it means, you know, it has, ex it ha and I think that it shapes everything. White privilege is probably the freedom to move through the world um, fearlessly uh, in a way that black people cannot move through the world. Um, that you can take advantage of opportunities with much less fear uh, and, and an assumption that you'll be treated equally with all other white people. Part of it is not having to even think about it. And so in a way it's sort of like the privilege of having that space in your mind free to think about other things and be concerned about other things. So it's not even having to be, to think about race is, is part of the privilege. White privilege is being able to walk into a department store and not be followed by the detective. Um, a friend of mine who's uh, Asian American, um, she was uh, uh, very unfairly treated at a department store. She was at a, um, a cosmetics counter and uh, she uh, had bought something and it came with a free gift. So the, the woman at the counter put the free gift in the bag and my friend didn't know that the, that the free gift had already been put in the bag so she had grabbed the one on the counter and put it in the bag uh, unknowingly, just as the, the sweetest woman wouldn't hurt a fly, just, um, and they called, the, they called the cops on her and they, she was taken to jail and arrested. I put myself in the same position that she was at and I, I know there's no way I would have been arrested. I know I would not have been arrested. Uh, it's the assumption that um, when you go to buy a car that you're going to have the money. Or well, it's the assumption that when you go into a real estate office looking for a place to rent, unless you wear raggedy clothes, you know, it's that you're going to want to go into this nice neighborhood. You, you basically get to say what you want to, be any way you want to, you get privileged, you don't have to work as hard, you can slack off. Um, in jobs and still get promoted and still not have to worry about somebody coming after you. Um, so whiteness to me is about privilege and access to information systems and people and power that you didn't earn. I went through a, a time where I was poor and I had to take care of my father and I worked with about a hundred African-American men and I was the only white male on the shop floor and I was really horrible at this job. It was a metal grinder. Uh, I'd grind too much of it. I'd make big indentations. Uh, I was constantly messing up and I was sure I was going to get fired. It was just a matter of time and about six months into the job the, the boss and uh, a few of the managers come over. They're all white men and I thought this is it. This is the day I'm getting fired and 
they came over and told me that they've had their eye on me and they think that I'm management material. I said, what? Uh, and they said, yeah, you stick around for a while and we, we think you've got potential uh, to be a manager here. It's all embedded in every piece of our country. It's embedded in every structure that we have. It's embedded in our economics. It's embedded everywhere. When I walk into a bank, or when I walk into anybody's neighborhood, or when I walk into uh, anybody's store, that I'm acceptable, that I can go anywhere I want, and I'm seen as a, an acceptable person. And the reason I am acceptable is because I'm white. I remember when I was going to get my driver's license renewed for the first time. Uh, I really couldn't see very much without my without glasses. I didn't have any glasses with me. They had you go to a one of these machines you look in and you know see like what letter it is and etc. I couldn't see any of it. You know, I was one of the few white people there, and the guy behind the desk was this older white guy, uh, and he just said, "Oh, don't worry about it. Go ahead." I was like, "Is he just letting everybody through?" And I saw that he wasn't, and I kind of was like, "Oh, okay." It's the ability to walk into the bank in Savannah when we were ready to build our house and borrow $100,000 and neither one of us were working. I mean, that to me, that, that is just so incredible that we, that we could do that. I mean, of course we had to present, you know, we had to give them facts and figures and all that kind of thing. But, you know, if you were a person of color and you walked in and you said, well, we're neither working and they're going to loan you $100,000, I don't think so. Oh, simple things. I mean, from everything from the ease of getting a bank loan to knowing that I can drive just about anywhere in the city and not get stopped because of my color by the police. When I drive down the road and I get pulled over by a police officer, it's probably because either I've broken the law or I'm getting a flat tire and the police officer's going to tell me I'm getting a flat tire. Well, when I get pulled over, I don't get tickets, you know. I'm a white woman, middle class, in a minivan. I get pulled over all the time for speeding, and it's almost become a joke. And then, you know, the police officers apologized to me for pulling me over, you know. And I know if I was a person of color, you know, that wouldn't happen, you know. I, I know that I would be pulled over a lot more if I was a person of color because I speed every day. And so I get stopped. They look at my license and then they let me go, you know? I've experienced whiteness uh, on the three occasions that I've been pulled over by law enforcement driving a car. One time I ran a red light, turning, yeah, turning red, right? Another time I was speeding, another time I had a headlight out. And every single time I got off with a warning. I never got a ticket for any of those things. It was privilege and white privilege and whiteness, therefore, that helped get me off. And I think for the average person, it would be whiteness that would allow me not to even have to think about why. Um, I could get away and thinking, oh, I sweet-talked my way out of that. I did, but I was aided by the fact that I'm white. They're not going to do a body check on me. They're not going to rip my car apart looking for a reason to haul me in. I'm not profiled. That's white privilege. Basically, when I go to city council or county commission, I expect my representatives to take me seriously, um, and they do for the most part because they know that they're that they have to be more accountable to the white community because the white community has more power and money, 
and can vote them out of office. We as white people have a sense of what our rights are, that we have the right to, you know, live well, live safely, um, have health care and, and, and police that respond to us, have city officials that pay attention to us, have, you know, our, the needs of our community be able to have those met. And I think that if you talk to people of color or look at communities of color, that that, that does not exist for people. That kind of, that idea of those rights. The more I know, the more it's like, I've really got to talk about privilege here. You know, even though, I mean, I faced a lot of shit in my life. I mean, I really had all this stuff happen, but I still had whiteness in a way that's given me all this stuff and it's all these things which not only give you privilege in the sense of stuff and access to stuff, but also it validates who you are. You know, so you have this feeling that you know I'm important, I'm worthwhile, that other people don't have. You know, you have they have to get it somewhere else. You know, they might get it from their family or what have you, but I'm gonna get it from everyone. You know, with few exceptions. I was taught that you respected black folk, but not as really as human beings, more like cats and dogs and cows. You wouldn't mistreat a cat or a dog in my family, and you wouldn't mistreat a black person. I, I don't have any trouble admitting that I'm a racist. I don't. I think it's absurd to to try to fight with that. I, I, I grew up in this society. I was conditioned by it. I think internally in my psyche, I have, I have grounded and rooted those attitudes, and I see it in me all the time. I mean, I'm always dealing with it. Uh, I don't think that makes me a bad person. You know, I don't think that means that I'm, you know, that I'm, I've grounded in original sin or anything. It just means I've been well indoctrinated. But it does also call me to do something about it. I consider myself somebody who does racist things and acts on the racism I have within me because of the context of the world in which I grew up and live in. For me individually to recognize and acknowledge that uh, I'm, I have the power of race in me uh, and that I'm going to be, I'll, I don't believe I'll ever have a time when I look at anybody and don't see their racial classification first. Oh, I hate to admit it, but I still have thoughts that I'm smarter than some black people just because of skin color. I mean, I'm sorry, but I, that still crosses my mind. Stereotypes will pop in my head just like everybody else, you know. When I see somebody, a stereotype will pop up, and then I have to say, no, you know, that's a prejudice. When I'm in a classroom of students, I'll tend to look at the white students more than I'll look at the black students. And when I realized I was doing that, I was shocked. And I, and I tried immediately to begin to train myself to stop doing that. And it was astonishingly difficult. Um, there was something about a, a, a natural tendency to look at white faces in a way that I did not have the same natural tendency to look at black faces. And I think that's a kind of an ingrained, inborn racism um, is all I can think of it as. I remember I was... Um talking with a young man named Sylvester and he was saying, you're racist. I'm going, I'm not. I'm going, you are. I'm not. You know, we went back and forth like that for a while. And then I had to go get refreshments. So I said, hold on. And I went upstairs and my mother turned to me and she said, get a grip on yourself. 
you know, you're a white young girl, you've grown up in the racist society, you're racist, deal with it, move on. But that was, you know, that was an amazing gift that my mother gave me because it allowed me to turn all of my defensiveness about it into, oh, well, maybe I am. Racism and prejudice are very different things. And all of us are grown, have grown up with prejudices. Some of us have prejudice against people of color. Some people have prejudice against white people. And some of us are downright awful about it. Because so much of the focus is on personal prejudices. That's how I think a large, a large part of um, the U.S. population like analyzes race matters is between different groups of people. Well, I think it works the same way. I've, if black people feel that white people can be racist towards them, I don't see any difference between a black person being racist towards a white person. In high school, uh, the high school I attended was probably 60% black, 40% white, and uh, being being white and in a majority black class, I was picked on and teased for that. Sometimes you, you come across uh, people that uh, feel because of what had happened in the past that we're held responsible. I'm 30 years old, I wasn't around when that was happening. I know what it feels like to be subjected to anger for something that I personally never did. If we're in the wrong place sometimes, it, and you, it's obvious that we're in the wrong place, we're the wrong color to be in that place, You'll hear a comment. You'll hear a comment. You'll hear some things that's not so nice that you would never think that you would hear. Um, you're a little too white to be in this neighborhood. When I was teaching, I was not privileged because I had to uh, interact with a lot of stereotypes about white people, and I had to deal with them on that level. But I was privileged in the sense that I got the job in the first place. I think that one of, one of the key things to, to uh, understand about racism is, you know, like Malcolm X said, racism is like a Cadillac. There's a new model every year, you know. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, racism is a, a dynamic social construction, so it's always changing, it's always mutating. So uh, people that say, well, there's no racism anymore, they're referring to racism as it existed in, you know, 1950 or 1920 or 1910. Racism permeates every aspect of our society and it's made it you know a world that we live in that's very unequal it isn't what you personally did or did not do um, and I think that's such a hard that's such a hard leap for white people to make is like it isn't something that I personally did but it's something I personally have to work against it ain't just a matter of who I am as a person or what I think or feel about other people. I think there's a hierarchy in our country that's based very clearly on skin color and on people's perceptions of what race you're in. And white are at the top and black are at the bottom. And Asian and Native American and people of sort of light brown hue are in the middle and Latinos are down, you know, and then blacks are at the bottom. Racism is not simply about how we get along on an individual level, but it has to do with who has institutional and social power. White people have the political and social power in our society and so and that is a given and if you look at certain if you pick apart social and political situations you can see that very clearly I think it's, it's quite obvious. Whites get privilege and experience the advantage of being in a system that thinks white is better than you know than, than folk of color and so 
there's all this unearned advantage that's going on all the time. Particularly in a society like the United States, it's, it's hard to confront racism unless you understand how, if you're racialized as white, you benefit from racism. Just because I am white and have these privileges, I, I, par I participate in a racist system. And that doesn't make, that it's not my fault, I can't help it, I'm born to it. And, you know, and that's what being white means. But I, I do think and assume that, that that white privilege is, in fact, the kind of racism that you can't avoid. All I got to do is sit down and close my eyes and things are going to just move forward or, uh, in sort of in white interests. And there's a way in which I'm, I'm complicit. I collude. I don't say anything. I don't do anything to stop it or challenge it. And in that way, I really do think that's, that's how racism works, and that's a way in which I'm racist. And the difference now is that I don't try and prove to anyone else or, or even to myself that I'm not racist. I sort of assume that, know that, and get on with doing anti-racist work as best I can. I believe that the, the very depth of understanding racism is, is understanding that process of us becoming white, you know, historically us becoming white, and exactly what does that mean to be white, and how much of our humanity that we've lost, because I think that the only way that whites can truly regain our humanity that's lost to the degree at which we've bought into white is through doing anti-racism work in anything that we do. Like a lot of people, you start to learn exactly how messed up our society is in terms of racial disparity, and you realize that you're in the privileged class, you know? And especially for me, being a queer feminist woman, I in no way wanted to identify myself with an oppressor society, um, an oppressor group. Um, and that was really hard for me. But calling myself white that's been a hard, to actually say I'm a white person took longer than me recognizing that I was a white person, you know what I mean? Yeah. To go around and say I'm white. Yeah. Get comfortable with it. Right, with that. Like I was aware that I was white, you know, through this whole process, but it's, you know, it's been a process of being able to say all the time, you know, I'm a white feminist. It's taking the onion and it's unpeeling the onion, you know, of, of, how, of how racism permeates everything around us. I am white. I am, you know, middle class, um, English speaking. And um, seeing that as, as tools that I can use and also claiming my identity communally as part of this white community and seeing that, you know, the work that I need and want to be doing is in the white community. What we have got to do is uh, use the power that we have because of the privilege to kind of tear down the, the, those things in the system that, that, uh, that hurt other people. For me, I haven't been able to give up white privilege because you can't until the system is eradicated, it's gonna be there. But by struggling against it, by fighting against it, by consciously making a decision to turn against it, I can release myself, I can say to myself, you know what, I'm still receiving these benefits and that's horrible, but at least I'm out there doing something about it. And so there's a sense of freedom. There's a sense of being 
of really claiming my humanity. As a white person, I have a, um, I have leverage. It's kind of funny because as a poor person, I never had leverage. But as a white person, I have leverage. And a woman, I didn't have much leverage either. But as a white person, I have leverage among other white people. They don't, they they take what I say with as being more valid. It doesn't seem self-interested to them. I mean, I have connection. I have connections with the judge. I have connections with the guy in the bank. I have connections everywhere with people that have power who can make decisions around policy, you know, procedures, just all kinds of things. So at that level, I, I can use my influence. What has been a challenge for me and where my, my greatest um, challenges have been is on how I can personally use the positions that I'm in to help to change the institutions in ways that make it possible for them to really be allied with communities of color and accountable to communities of color and where people who come to work in those institutions can begin to um, come in to them without feeling like they have to code switch or without feeling like they have to put on another persona in order to survive. There's this whole world out there that I had no idea about. And as far as I can see, people of color, the ones that I have been close to in the communities that I've been around, have a, have a lot more figured out about how to be human beings than white people do. I think because we're cast as oppressors, we've had to um, get rid of a lot of pieces of ourselves that are human. And it's, it's deadened us to a lot. I mean, it's deadened our sympathies and our empathies and our heart to other people. I think that um, not knowing that you come into this world with all this privilege makes us, um, you know, doesn't make us good people in the sense that it, it doesn't make us. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Yes, I'll take that back. Contrary. If you say that you have to bring the country to its knees if it messes with a black man, you're saying that the only protection for black people is that they unite. So that when one black man is touched because he's black, there's some protection for him. Now, it's obvious that that protection does not exist in this country. It does not now exist. And the only people who can have that protection are black people. And black people know that. Now, white people may not know that. So it means that you have to build a movement so strong in this country that if one black man is touched, every black man will rise up and let this country know they're not going to tolerate it. If one man, one black man is touched. That's right, because he's black. I mean, if a black man is walking down the streets of Mississippi, down a highway with a Bible in his hand, he is shot because he is black. That's one incident. Oh, but I can name you a lot of others, and you know that yourself. In the northern ghettos, if one black man in California is driving his pregnant wife to the hospital and he is shot by a white racist policeman, I can name you more incidents. Then you're saying fight violence with violence. I am saying that we must build a movement of black people that will protect ourselves so that we are willing to stop that by any means necessary. Now, I'm not concerned 
about the question of violence. It seems to me that that will depend upon how, in fact, white people respond. If white people, in fact, are willing not to bother with black people because they are black, then there's going to be no question of violence. When you read stories about difficulties, riots in Omaha or Cleveland or Brooklyn or Chicago or wherever, I call them rebellions. They're rebellions. And you, you see nothing wrong with them? I think that it is people who are rebelling against a system that has locked them inside tight of ghettos that exploit and oppress them and they have no means of redress to break that system down. We intend to build within black people the realization that that problem is not theirs, that's created by white society. It's purposely created by white society and then they throw it back on us and blame us. That's the first thing we have to create in black people. Then secondly, we have to move to a position where we can control the housing in our neighborhoods so that we're not exploited, so that we're not charged high rents to share apartments with rats, and so that the owners of those apartments don't live in the suburbs grabbing the profits from us, that we are able to grab it, and that the money will be able to stay in our community so we can develop it. It is no different from a colony in Africa who is supposedly free, but her resources are controlled by the mother country. They have to move to a position to control the resources. And having done that, their problems are already solved. And the means that you will use to achieve all of this? Well, uh, any means necessary. Well, I know, but now, well, spell that out. What does that mean? It means that we will develop tactics as we go along, and whatever those tactics are, we will use them. Tactics? That means you've got to buy the buildings. You've got to start the businesses. You've got to train the people. How are you going to do that by yourself? How are you going to do it without the help of the white community? Well, the first help we need of the white community is just to turn over those buildings to us. Turn them over? That's correct. Turn them over. You think that's likely, Mr. Carmichael? Well, you asked me what help we wanted white people to give. Or they could buy it for us. You mean Washington would buy it from, let's say, the slumlord and turn it over to you? That's correct. You believe really that that is the salvation of the black man? I think that this country is run by property ownership and that black people are not only property-less, they are viewed as property. And we have to move to a position of property ownership in this country so that we can bargain from a position of strength with racists rather than a position of weakness. You're one black man who went to a good, essentially white high school in the city of New York. That's you correct. obviously had had a good education. That's a good many of the people who work with you here in SNCC can say the same thing. And we're saying that... And you're a black man who came from a New York ghetto. And we're saying that there's a system that allows for one or two black people to get out. And that that's the rationale for keeping other black people down. And it has nothing to do with the unwillingness or inability of the Negro to help himself and to work hard. That's the rationale, that the reason why black people aren't this is because they're lazy, unambitious, stupid, have rhythm, and they eat watermelon. You call on the black man to refuse to respond to his draft call. That is correct. And we will continue to do so while there's breath in our bodies. Do you really believe that the military policies of the United States are designed to exterminate the black man, as you've said? 
I most certainly do. I look at the recent statement by Racist McNamara, who says that 30% of the people that are going to be drafted now under his new system are going to be black people, and that's nothing more than black urban removal. The white liberal who supported civil rights for so long with time and effort and money. What is your feeling about him? Well, I think that there's no reason why they should stop supporting the movement now. I certainly feel that if they're genuinely interested in black people, and since black people have charted a course, they believe in that program, they will continue to give to it. They need more white people to civilize whites. They need them to civilize the savages in Cicero who throw rocks and bricks at a peaceful and lovable black man like Dr. Martin Luther King, who would not even hurt a fly. And that's very important, because our uncles and our fathers and our older brothers died in World War I fighting Nazism to protect the Poles, and those same Poles turn around and throw rocks and bricks at us after we died to save their lives. And people talk about we are savages. Mr. Carmichael, if you had the chance to stand up in front of the white community and say anything you desired, say to him, understand me, white man, what would you say? I would say, understand yourself, white man, that the white man's burden should not have been preached in Africa but it should have been preached among you that you need now to civilize yourself. You have moved to destroy and disrupt. You have taken people away. You have broken down their systems and you have called all that civilization. And we who have suffered at this are now saying to you, you are the killers of the dreams. You are the savages. Yes, it is you who have always been uncivilized. Civilize yourself. That the, the Voting Rights Act was, uh, you know, basically calcified. That um, only 17 districts had been bailed out of the protections of the Voting Rights Act. And so it shows that the Voting Rights Act wasn't working. Okay, but two things. What he missed was that racism is alive and well in America. Mm -hmm. And two, it's clear because when the Voting Rights Act was getting its 2006 reauthorization, they had counted over 700 changes that states and jurisdictions had tried to make that the Department of Justice stopped right. because they were racially discriminatory. So if the Department of Justice has stopped 700 changes to voting rights laws, it tells you that this thing is just clamping at the bit like this monster in the basement trying to come through the door. Um, and the Supreme Court let, let that door wide open and boom, voter suppression took over in more than half of the states in the United States. Now the truth is that um, John Roberts, the current Chief Justice, mm -hmm. um, is, was the protege of William Rehnquist, former Chief Justice. Yes. And both of them have traditionally been hostile to rights for African Americans, haven't they? Absolutely. I mean, and, 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 and hostile to the Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. So, and you saw, for instance, um, Rehnquist started his career in Arizona. And one of the things that he was known for was uh, forming a group 
that would go into the polls and basically challenge Latino voters on whether they were actually registered to vote there and should be registered to vote there and, 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 and basically voter intimidation. Exactly. Um, you saw that it was in another case where Vinquis uh, um, wrote, um, that the 14th and 15th Amendments, which were the amendments coming out after the Civil War, the 14th Amendment dealing with citizenship and due yeah. process, and the 15th Amendment dealing with the right to vote um, um, and not being hampered by racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. And he said the 14th and 15th Amendments are basically African Americans trying to get back at the, you know, slaveholders um, in the past. It's I mean, so horrible. I mean, it's just, and, and, and there's a sense that, that Rehnquist and John Roberts share a sense that you are giving people their rights. Not that you have these rights. Right. That they can just, as a gift, hand them to you if they want to. Exactly. And so when you've got that framework of a gift, then that sneering disregard for the basic democratic rights to vote, right. and that is what we saw emanating out of this court. So you were talking about um, uh, this uh, rush um, in, in many states um, towards voter suppression. I mean, just right. to, to do this, that, and the other thing yes. uh, to keep people from voting. Talk about what this, that, and the other thing, what they are. Give us some examples of the types of um, uh, activities that fall under the umbrella of voter suppression. So um, in Alabama, mm -hmm. for instance. Uh, Alabama actually passed a voter ID law in 2011, two years before the Shelby County v. Holder decision, but didn't bother to send it up to the Department of Justice because they knew it couldn't get through a pre-clearance review because it was so <laughs> fundamentally racist. Um, but shortly after Shelby County v. Holder, Alabama implemented that law. What it was was a voter ID law saying that you had to have certain types of government-issued photo ID. Mm -hmm. And then they defined what types of ID. In that definition of IDs, they made sure that the kinds of IDs that African Americans had was not the one that was listed. <laughs> oh, that's not what we wanted. That's not what we meant. Not at all. Not at all. Um, and, and so, for instance, um, driver's license, but over 15% of African Americans in Alabama did not have a driver's license, as opposed to about 4% of whites. Right. Um, and then they said, but, you know, your public housing ID won't count right. because 71% of those who had public housing ID were African-American. And for many, as Sherilyn Eiffel, who is the head of the NAACP, LDF, LDF yeah. right, she said sometimes for many that's the only ID that they have. Exactly. And then Alabama went and shut down the Department of Motor Vehicles in the Black Belt counties. Right. So that when you don't have an ID, but now your ID, you know, the place where you can get an ID is closed. Now, there was massive pressure that got those places open for like one day a month. Right. <laughs> but I mean, it's just so clear. It's, it's so, so clear. outrageous. Yes. Yeah. So voter ID is, uh, the requirement of voter ID is uh, one form of voter suppression. Give us another. Another form are voter roll purges. And with voter roll purges, it is knocking people off of the registration rolls. Yep. And many times people don't even know they've been knocked off. Now, there are laws about how you have to inform people what the tripwires are. In many cases, the secretaries of state um, have ignored those laws and just gone straight for, uh, you, you haven't voted, I'm going to knock you off. Right. Um, what we've seen, for instance, is that in Ohio, 
uh, 1.2 million of those who have been purged have been purged simply for not voting regularly, consistently. But Which is crazy. You, you, don't have to, you don't have to vote in every election. Exactly. But in Ohio. And so that was a way because what they know are that minorities and that the youth and people who are poor don't vote regularly. Right. And so this is a way where you can stay on this side of the 15th Amendment, but in fact target a, a key demographic and, and knock them off. So they'll insist that this is not um, uh, racially motivated because it applies to everybody, when in fact it is only done uh, right. for racist reasons. Exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah. And then the, the, um, the things that where uh, people are eligible, eligible to vote, um, but it's made much more difficult to actually cast that vote. Yes, and so one of the things that they're really good at, for instance, um, in two measures, one is early voting. Early voting was designed to deal with the fact that you've got many working class folk and getting off on a Tuesday right. to go vote means that you're either going to miss some work mm -hmm. or that you're not, going to, you're not going to vote and so you're going to miss the chance to really engage civically in choosing who's going to make decisions, uh, policy decisions about your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what that means. So what early voting does is it spreads that out so that you have more flexibility into when you're going to vote. So one of the things is that African Americans disproportionately use early voting. And so these states began to cut back on early voting hours and early voting days, particularly right. targeting the days where African Americans were coming out, like on souls to the polls, that yep. Sunday right before very the election. Very specific days, yeah. Very specific days. And they started eliminating the number of early voting sites. And so I liken it to going into a grocery store. There are 20 aisles but only four aisles are open. And so the lines are just, just going all the way down the store. And, and what that does, we've got the research on that. Long, long lines really begin to demoralize and depress voter turnout because people feel it's futile. Right, it discourages people. In Miami, um, one of the lines was seven hours long. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I mean, seven hours long. In Cincinnati, the line went for a quarter of a mile. I mean, this is, this is designed to really depress voter turnout. In, in certain areas. In certain areas. Right. In certain areas. So in Indiana, for instance, what Indiana did, Mike Pence, when he was the governor, he signed a law that counties that have over 325,000 residents can only have one early voting site. Other counties with fewer residents can have more. How is it possible under any circumstances to rationalize a law like that? It, it, it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not. Well, it, and, and that takes me to my, specifically to my next question, because these, these voter suppression efforts are uh, being conducted um, more and more. They're being conducted by the Republican Party. Yes. Be clear about what they're trying to achieve. And if you can, put it in a little bit of an historical context. And so what they're trying to achieve, and, this, and as I was going through this book and going through the research, uh, and I'm a historian, I went, oh, my God, this is the Mississippi Plan of 1890. <laughs> because with the Mississippi Plan of 1890, that was the, the, the drive to remove African Americans from the ballot box, to remove them from having a say in the government. Because post-Civil War, mm -hmm. during Reconstruction, right. 
blacks had the right to vote and they were exercising the right to vote, yes. exercising the right to run and hold office. Yes, okay. yes. And so all of that, and it was like, no, we're stopping this. Right. And, but then there's this thing called the 15th Amendment. So <laughs> how, do you, how do you stop black people from voting without saying we want black people to not vote? Right. And so they came up with all of these devices that went after the kind of societally imposed characteristics of a people and then made those societally imposed characteristics the litmus test. So you had a poll tax. So you had to pay a tax in order to vote, and it was cumulative. Well, if you have inscribed... Which, excuse me, which I don't think a lot of people realize that the poll... People do know somewhat about the poll tax, but they don't, they don't realize it was cumulative. cumulative. So expa explain that. Yes, yeah, so what that means is, is that uh, first the rules were very arcane on when you were supposed to pay this poll tax and where. On the third day of the fourth month in those years, divisible by seven but not by nine. Right? <laughs> and so it's like really confusing. Right. Um, and, and, so, and because of poverty and that, it... Sometimes it would take people 10, 20 years to be able. So imagine having to pay 20 years of back poll taxes right. before you can vote. So you begin to think about what that means in terms of the annual family income for a family that is impoverished. Mm -hmm. And so you use poverty as the litmus test to be able to vote. That's what the poll tax does. It doesn't say we don't want black people to vote. Right. It's just we don't want poor people to vote. And if you have a disproportionate number of, of black people who are poor, boom. Right. Yeah. So you just target black people any which way you can without saying exactly. it's because they're black. Exactly. It, a, and, and, and so why now? Why still in the 21st century is the Republican Party engaged in this and, awful stuff, actually? And I think part of it, I will go back to the Southern strategy mm -hmm. of Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon in 1968, mm -hmm. because after 1964, with because the South had been the solid Democratic South, right? But then the solid Democratic racist South, South. yeah, that's the, the Democratic <laughs> office holders, the segregationists, and yeah, right, exactly. And so you had um, when Lyndon Johnson, Democrat, signs the Civil Rights Act of 64, and then pushes and signs the Voting Rights Act of 65, mm -hmm. the solid Democratic South was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> what, is, what is our brother doing? That's only one of us, right? And the Republicans are seeing an opportunity to, in fact, get a larger region uh, into their fold. And so they start talking about the Southern strategy, but they realize it's that Lee Atwater, who was Reagan's Southern strategist, said, yeah. you know, in 1954 you could say the N-word. Yeah. But by 1968, hurts you, backfires. Yeah. Can't do that anymore. Can't, do Can't that be anymore. openly racist. Can't be openly racist. He says, so we start talking about economic things and things like taxes and like forced busing mm -hmm. and states' rights. And he's like, and all of those things, the whole point is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. Exactly. Right? And so that is the template for the Southern strategy. So as the Republicans woo that white supremacist toxin into their party, that toxin eventually took over. Um, you would see with each subsequent election, it became more and more virulent. Yeah. Um, so we would get welfare queens, and then we would get Willie Horton, right? And then we would get Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the, the Republicans are doing this because the further, the more virulent that toxin of white supremacy became, the more repugnant the Republicans' policies were to a, a growing and increasingly diverse America. Right. They can't 
win in a democracy by the votes that are out there based on their policies. And they don't have the internal ability to reform because that toxin right. is so deeply embedded in their, in their way of being, in their way of doing, in their way of thinking. And so their only then recourse to maintain power is to suppress the vote. Of, of I mean, some yeah. of it is that, like literally right in, in front of your eyes with the demographic changes, for example, and, and, and then they, they, you know, that's unstoppable. The Republican Party can't stop those demographic changes. Right. So you have to keep these folks from voting. Exactly. Keep them out of the voting booth. And, 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 and we have, you know, there's a term called a Heron-Volk democracy. It was like apartheid South Africa, mm -hmm. where you have a minority white group that maintains a lot of the power, and the majority blacks. Uh, do not have that power. And, and so you hear this, this cry, basically what they call for an ethno-nationalist state. Right. They haven't quite said it as the party, but you see in the ways that they, you know, with, with uh, immigration and their anti-immigrant uh, stances, with their, their, their faux law and order, where law and order is basically applied to folks of color. Mm -hmm. um, you see it in those kinds of policies. The, uh, one of the things I find particularly insidious have been, um, one of the things, <laughs> is the attack on uh, um, voter registration. Uh, can you talk about uh, what's going on uh, there and, and, and how this uh, can be permitted or is legal? Yes, yeah, so one of the things that they have done, for instance, um, states like Texas and Florida have implemented laws about how you can register people to vote. Mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, so you take Texas that has these big metropolitan cities that spread out over multiple counties. You can only register somebody in a county if they're from that county. So um, like the Dallas-Fort Worth area, right. you cannot register somebody who's in this county. Um, even if you're at the mall, right? So setting something up at the mall, if you do, and you have to go through a whole series of classes and the, the ability to register folks only lasts for so long, and if you violate any of this, right. you know, you've got a felony. So it criminalizes registering people to vote. And, then, and, and they've been enforcing these laws. Talk about uh, the way some people have been um, convicted of felonies and, and imprisoned. Right, and so they have... Um, they have, uh, particularly, I would say, with uh, in Florida, we saw where they had these laws and, and they went after and they drove the League of Women Voters out of Florida. And the League of Women Voters had to sue. And the League of Women Voters had been there for 70 years registering people to vote. And who can imagine criminal behavior <laughs> among the League of Women, women voters? voters? Right, right. But this is because they know that because of these demographics and because of the demographics that those who are becoming voting age eligible are much more diverse than older Americans. Um, and that diversity, you've got to stop that registration. You've also had um, in Georgia, where I'm from, um, you've had organizations that have looked at how do we bring in all of these minority voters who are unregistered. And and the moment that they started registering, I mean, they began to have some success. Then you had the Secretary of State 
going after them criminally, mm -hmm. um, doing these massive investigations and yelling voter fraud, voter fraud, right. voter fraud. Right. And years of these investigations yielded no voter fraud and yielded no charges, therefore yielded no convictions. But what it was designed to do was to, in fact, stoke fear in these organizations mm -hmm. about registering. And it's been working to, to some extent. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it, it is. And so you're, you're like, okay, we got an I dot and T crossing. And, and they get hung up in a catch-22 because the law says that you, every card that gets turned in for a registered, you've got to turn it in. Every card that's completed, you've got to turn it in. Mm -hmm. Well, some folks have a whacked sense of humor, and they will fill out the card Mickey Mouse. Right. Or, you know, and, right. and then you have to turn that in. And then you have to turn that in. And then they say, see, voter fraud, Mickey Mouse. Exactly, exactly. So, but all the news is not bad. <laughs> There's resistance oh, to this voter suppression. Absolutely. Um, we've only got a couple minutes left, but please talk about that a little bit. Okay, and one of the things, I think uh, the highlight of looking at this resistance and the way it works is Alabama, in that Doug Jones, Roy Moore special election in December 2017. And here you have, I mean, just stark differences. But civil society went in there, civil society, NAACP, League of Women Voters, ACLU, um, LDF, went in there and began to organize, organize, organize. They looked at all of the voter suppression methods that Alabama had deployed against the Black Belt counties. And Alabama had deployed every last one of them, <laughs> every last one of them. And these groups, you know, so for felony disfranchisement, they sat there and they figured out how to move around it. They finally got Alabama to define what a moral turpitude clause was for a felony disfranchisement. Right. And then when Alabama refused to let people know what, uh, that they were actually eligible to vote, these groups did that work. Wow. Um, they knocked on doors. They drove people to and from the polls. They had poll watchers, attorneys at the polling stations to make sure that all of the laws were being adhered to and people were not being disfranchised. They moved those stumbling blocks out of the way. Yeah. Because if we're talking about really creating something new, we actually have to create something new, right? So it isn't enough that, you know, kids are going to the hospital and some kids are getting treated better than others or your loved ones. It has to be something new. It means that what we are fighting for, we are deeply entangled with each other around and not just our own personal interests, right? Um, my next talk is on Palestine, but they're my people. And so we have to expand the notion of just the biological people being your family. Because if I was telling you whoever got shot last night was your people, how we respond to that. And, and I'm going to say this really quickly is that sometimes we're afraid that we're going to never stop grieving. And what I will tell you is that that has never been true. But if you don't grieve the loss of something, you can't fight for what you'd actually like to see. You're, you're still stuck in your grief. How many people have ever seen somebody and they're still stuck in their grief? And all you want for them is joy because you know joy comes next. So if we could get less afraid of being afraid and more excited about being in love, in real terms of love, we would move in such a spirit that, that fear would not impede our progress, that fear does not get in our way, and, so, and that our family is our family. And we don't ask them to be perfect, right? I had two parents. They were broken people. They came from broken people. 
right? I'm a mother of four. I'm sure they're probably going to need some therapy later. <laughs> I did the best I could. You know, it's all you get. I, I did the very best that I could, you know, and I, it's not over, right? We're still here. I'm still going to work on it. But, like, we have to make a commitment to stay with one another, and I think that's been the difference. I think we feel like we've had a luxury to leave each other, and instead we have to stay in the fight and stay together. And that, yeah. Another writer wrote a piece called How Trump Happened, Jamil Bowie, and he makes the point, it's not just anger over jobs and immigration. White voters, many of them hope Trump will restore the racial hierarchy upended by Barack Obama. He said, Obama did not herald a post-racial America as much as he, as he heralded a racialized one. Not he did it, but it happened because of who he is. Many whites were hyper-aware after his election of their racial status. He goes on to say, in a nation shaped and defined by a rigid racial hierarchy, his election was a radical event a tectonic shift in which a man from one of the nation's lowest caste ascended to the summit of its political landscape. He did so with heavy support from minorities, Asian Americans, Latinos, Republicans, Democrats. Broke through the solid South. That wasn't supposed to happen. And black Americans turned out the highest number and black females turned out higher than anybody. He goes on to say then, more than simply change, Obama's election felt like inversion to many. And then when you couple that with broad decline in incomes and living standards caused by the Great Recession, it seemed like the signal to the end of a hierarchy that had always placed white Americans on top. He goes on to quote Robin DiAngelo, a professor of multicultural education at Westfield State, and he describes what, is, what happened was white fragility. White fragility is a state in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of defensive moves. These moves include outward display of emotions such as anger, fear, guilt, argumentation, silence. And they function to reinstate white racial equilibrium. If you don't wrestle with this, then you don't understand why it is that 94% of black women, 5% voted for Hillary, but 58% of white women voted for Trump. And only 8% of African Americans and 66% of white women said they were not afraid of Trump after all. 79% of white men, I'm not afraid. But only 28% of black women said they weren't afraid. What's going on here? What's going on here? We have to recognize the centrality of race and racism, America's original sin that still impacts our social DNA, the continuing reality of racism and classism connected together. One author says from Duke, and the problem is we sometimes think the only time you see racism when somebody says the N-word or only when 
another unarmed young black man or woman or child is killed by the police. But no, it's the climate that makes the killing all right. In fact, there's a book entitled Racism Without Racists whose conclusions must become a part of our critique. The author notes, he says, we're virtually out of racists today. Even self-proclaimed white supremacists now being racist. They are merely extolling white pride the same way that African Americans celebrate their heritage. He said, but according to Glenn Lowry, in every observable measure of well-being, wages, unemployment, income, and wealth levels, prison enrollment, crime victimization, health and mortality statistics, we see racial disparity. Now some try to say that's just because they keep bringing up the logic of the bell curve. That's just simply because black people and minority people are not as moral as they should be. And if they were more moral, you wouldn't have. Some try to say there are no racists, he goes on to say, but only the will for death cannot hear the dog whistle politics. When you call the president a food stamp president, that's race, that's dog whistle, that's it, it, a, a juvenile, unfit, a socialist, un-American. That's dog whistle, and only the dogs are supposed to hear it. The problem is, we too many of us now can discern it. When Trump brought up poverty, progressives should not have been offended, but should have gone on the offense, particularly when he tried to limit poverty to a black issue. Because what we got to help, the race question in this country, we got to help people face this question. Many white people, what is it? that causes many whites who are poor, 18.9 million poor whites as of 2013 is higher now. That means there are 8 million more poor white people than there are poor black people. And there are 5 million more poor white people than there are Latinos. And the majority of the people benefiting from programs like food stamps and Medicaid and Medicare are white. But 95% of the politicians who are elected, excuse me, in 95 of the counties, of 100 poorest counties in the country, we elect politicians who vote against the very programs like living wages and labor rights and unemployment benefits, among which whites use the most. So here's the question. Why are you allowing politicians to get away with racializing entitlement programs? Why are we allowing people to play us against one another when the truth is 90% of the so-called entitlement programs, according to the Center for Budget and Policy, goes to elderly, disabled, working poor, not lazy people. But that word lazy has all kinds of racist overtones. And why is it? Why is it? What is it that causes many of our white brothers and sisters who need health care to stand against the health care? that the president has tried to provide. In this state, why is it that people voted, white people voted, many of them, against Medicaid expansion when if we had it, 346,000 white people would be benefited? What is it that causes some of my white brothers and sisters to think that if you support a candidate that tells you they're going to give scholarships for you to take your tax money and give it to private schools, but even with the scholarship, your poor child is still not going to be able to go there? What is it that trumps common sense? What mythology is so powerful that it will make you walk away from the very people you need to be allied with and allow a wealthy oligarchy 
who simply wants to get your vote so they can siphon the tax dollars back into their pockets, who have never delivered for poor whites or poor blacks or poor Latinos, who every time they get a hold of the government, they run it in the ground. What mythology makes you forget all of that and vote for them anyway? Is the mythology of race still that powerful? This election has shown us. Yes, it is. And we have to have a grown-up conversation about race in this country. And we're going to have to have it in audiences like this. And my white brothers and sisters, you're going to have to help lead it and deal with it. Because it does not matter. If you're up in the mountains of North Carolina and white, or you're down on the coast of North Carolina and black, and black, or you're in the urban center and you're black, white, or Latino, and if you are so poor you can't pay your light bill, we're all black in the dark, and we better come together and find out a way to get the lights turned on. It is still true what Dr. King said. The only coalition that can transform America will be for blacks and poor whites and Latinos and Asians and Native Americans and workers to come together and form a mighty moral coalition to stand up against those who would divide us. Many are trying to reject the reality of race, and this is what occurred early Wednesday morning after running a campaign that was enthusiastically endorsed even by the KKK. Donald Trump thanked his supporters for victory, promised to be president for all Americans. It was a shock to almost every pollster and political pundit. His victory has unheralded an unprecedented political upheaval. But the reactionary wave that swept across America this past Tuesday, hear me and hear me well, it is not an anomaly. Don't you dare say this is the worst thing that's ever happened in America. Because then you're really being offensive. You forgot slavery? But it's not an anomaly. Instead, it is an all too familiar pattern in the long struggle for American reconstruction. Anybody who watched the election returns come in on television Tuesday night, will remember that red band that stretched from North Carolina south and west across the nation, the former Confederate states. This solid south proved to be a reliable base for Trump, but he joins a long line of white men who have leveraged this base, fooled people in this base to get to the White House. And like so many things in America's racial history, the solid south was born of compromise. Confederate states were readmitted to the Union based on their affirmation of the Reconstruction Amendments, which abolished slavery, gave voting rights to African Americans, and guaranteed equal protection under the law. But federal troops were required for them to keep their word, to guarantee these rights to African Americans. Appealing to racial fear and resentment against occupation, Southern politicians developed the Mississippi Plan to take back their country by any means necessary and in essence, make it great again. Through voter suppression and intimidation and violence, 
They swept the elections in 1876. They didn't quite win the White House, hence the Compromise of 1877. Republican Rufus B. Hayes could be president. He didn't win the popular vote, but he said he could be president and get the Electoral College if he would promise to remove federal troops from the South. It did not take long for a solid South to pass state laws abridging African Americans' rights to full citizenship. Yes, the Union won the Civil War, but the Compromise of 1877 taught African Americans that the fight for Reconstruction was not done. And it taught whites who, who wanted to be progressive themselves that the fight is never done. By 1883, just six years after the Compromise, the Civil Rights Act of 1875 was repealed by the U.S. Supreme Court. Deconstruction was now in full gear, undergirded by an immoral religious movement called the Redemption Movement. By 1896, separate but equal was once again the law of the land. And by November the 10th, that just passed us this week, there were riots in Wilmington, the only coup d'etat of its type when black, duly elected black and whites who were progressive were run out of office. Blacks were killed, some say at a rate of, 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 of more per capita than were killed on 9-11. Voting went down, white supremacy came in, Charles B. Acox was awarded the governorship because of his participation in that coup d'etat and because of how he went around the state preaching the language of division, saying I and I'm the one back in, eight, in, in late 1800s. In the early 1900s, he said that if you don't, you, this is your only chance now. It's Charles Acock. You've got to save the dignity of your white women. He said this in this state and led to the Wilmington riots and then to the governorship. It, in the long story of our struggle for freedom, every advance toward a more perfect union has been met with a backlash of resistance. The same kind of backlash followed the legislative victories of the civil rights movement what many historians call the Second Reconstruction, the Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, Fair Housing Act, War on Poverty were fruits of, the fruit of decades of struggle waged by people who knew they might never see the victory in their own lifetime. But the backlash against them wasn't limited to Southern segregationists. Richard Nixon's law and order was code word for put the peace activists and the black people back in their place campaign of 1968, it was an intentional effort to win the solid South by appealing to racial hate and fear without using racial language. Openly, his, his, his advisor who later repented of his actions, Kevin Phillips, called it the Southern strategy. He told him, find out who hates who, and you can, find, you can win in America. The Dixiecrats like Strom Thurmond and Jesse Ham took over the Republican Party and avowed to undo all the advances of the civil rights movement and to play wedge issue games to split black and white voters, many poor who needed to be allies. They found funding from a wealthy oligarch who used this division to elect candidates, the Kochs, that would embrace trickle-down economics underneath their race card politics. In fact, they even said in 76, we're not going to ever again go after a Messiah candidate. We're going to build a movement that we can punish any candidate that does not go our way. And they used their race card politics so that they could line their pockets with wealth while fooling the working class poor white person that their real enemy was the money going to entitlement programs for black and brown people. And the sad truth is that the majority of those safety net programs actually were the programs that were helping many poor whites. 
Donald Trump's unanticipated victory could not have been possible, as we said, without the election of President Obama as America, first African-American president. Of course, Trump entered national politics by waging a crusade against the possibility of Obama's citizenship. And it proved to be the perfect way to touch the psychic wound of so many Americans who have not faced our legacy of racism. Anyone familiar with the Mississippi Plan of 1876 and the Southern Strategy of 1968 cannot be surprised by this election. The only thing you can be surprised by is the ease at which Trump adapted it for the 21st century. Trump's attacks on immigrants and Muslims and the LGBT community were political ploys based on the fundamental racial fear at the heart of the American experience. When he told white Americans that he was their last chance, you know, he said it the last week, the last chance to make America great again, he was code wording, talking about the coming diversity in 220 and 230, and he was touching a wound passed down since the lost cause religion of the 19th century. And so now, America must not waste time asking ourselves how this could have happened. It happened because it is a habit written deep in our public memory. If we are willing to see ourselves as we are and have been, we will also see another habit. And that is our potential for prophetic resistance. Our potential for revival and resiliency and redemption after rejection. Even in times like these. When the prophet Samuel cries out to God in the Old Testament asking why the people have elected to follow a strong man rather than the Lord of justice. God replies, it's not you they have rejected. They are rejecting me. Those who have struggled against injustice in this country must not take the results of this election personally. We cannot afford to blame our neighbors or demonize even just Mr. Trump. We are together inheritors of a legacy that has rejected injustice over and over again. That is a part of our legacy. But that is not all we are. We are also the heirs of great dissenters who stood for right even when they were a minority of one, who found ways to be resilient and to be revived even when rejected. When the Jim Crow law of the Solid South was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in the case Plessy versus Ferguson, only one justice, Justice Harlan of Kentucky, dissented. But his dissenting opinion laid the legal groundwork for Charles Hamilton Houston and Thurgood Marshall to eventually win Brown versus Board of Education. Oh yes, that's who we are. When Woodrow Wilson showed Birth of a Nation at the White House a hundred years ago this year, that distorted the Reconstruction, that lied and claimed that the black elected officials of the 8th, 19th century and white elected officials had participated in rigged elections. When he played that, that movie in the Oval Office that had been written by a man from Shelby, North Carolina. When he played it in the Oval Office, W.E.B. Du Bois, Ida B. Wells, Mary Wright Overton, and an interracial NAACP challenge the most powerful man in America, to face his racism. That's who we are. 
when three civil rights workers were brutally murdered in the first days of Freedom Summer, black and white students chose not to run but to press on together and to go right back to Mississippi's brutal racism because they believed they could change the world. Their mentor, Fannie Lou Hamer, taught them by example that we who struggle for freedom and who are sick and tired of being sick and tired, we don't ever turn back. She was nearly beaten to death in a Winona County jail. She was in jail being beaten when Mega Evers was shot, but she came out singing even louder and fighting even harder. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And so after Tuesday's rejection of justice, which is as American as apple pie, we must apply now the moral defibrillator. You heard me talking about applying it to the nation. Put your hand on your own heart and apply it to yourself. It's time to be revived. It's time for us to be more determined to stand for love and justice and mercy. Less than a majority of Americans elected a mortal and not a god to be our next president. And they did not unelect the foundational principles of our Constitution. They did not uh, unelect the great moral convictions of our faith. Fear, yes, is a key ingredient in the poisonous, toxic, and intoxicating brew of racism and classism. And once it's ingested, rationality goes out and self-destruction comes in. That is why now we who are sober must understand you were not unelected. You are a child of God. You are a prophetic witness. You are the Samuels that America needs right now. Oh, yes. And, oh, hallelujah. And we who are sober now must help the nation, in fact, the whole world, drunk with the wine of the world, to find the wine of the Spirit the wine of justice, the wine of love, the wine of hope. We must build these moral coalitions, interracial coalitions. We must fight now for a moral revolution of values. Still, Madam President, we must sing, lift every voice and sing. We cannot forget the lessons that the dark past has taught us and the faith that it has brought us. And we must forever stand and be true to our God. We cannot congratulate Mr. Trump because to congratulate him would be like to congratulate a Christian for being hateful or congratulating your child for failure in school. But like Samuel, we got to counsel him. We need to say to him, before you take office and put your hand on the Bible, repent. Repent. And commit yourself. Not to follow the divisive agenda that you... Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. The Harlem riots had taken place. People were left dead. Black soldiers had come back from World War I. And riots were all over the nation to put them back in their place. It was there that Langston Hughes wrote a poem 
about resiliency, revival, and redemption in the face of rejection. This was before the Civil Rights Movement. This was before Harry Truman desegregated the armed forces. This was before Social Security was open to African Americans. And Langston Hughes got his pen and said, let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plane seeking a home where he himself is free. Let America be the dream, the dreamer's dream. Let it be the great strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme. Let any man be crushed by anyone above. It was never America to me. Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wealth, wreath. But opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. He went on to say, I am the poor white fooled and pushed apart. I am the Negro bearing slavery scars. I am the red man driven from the land. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I seek and finding only the same old stupid plan of dog-eat-dog, of mighty crush the weak. He goes on to say in this same poem, Who said the free? Not me. Surely not me. The millions on relief today. The millions shot down when we strike. The millions who have nothing for our pay. For all the dreams we've dreamed, all the songs we've sung, all the hopes we've held, all the flags we've hung. The millions who have nothing for our pay except the dream that's almost dead today. Oh, let America be America again. The land that never has been yet and yet must be. A land where every man is free, the land is mine, the poor man, Indians, Negro me, who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain. We must bring back our mighty dream again. Sure, call me any ugly name you choose. The steel of freedom does not stain from those who live like leeches on the people's lives. We must take back our land again. America, oh yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be out of the rack and ruin of our gangster death. The rape and the rot of graft and stealth of lies. We, the people, must redeem the land, the mines, the plants, the rivers, the mountains, and the endless plain. All and all the stretch of these great green states and make America again. So, if you believe and you stood for justice on Monday, I know Tuesday came, but you ought to still stand for justice today. If you believed in love on Monday... You ought to still believe in love today. If you still believed in living wages on Monday, you ought to believe in it after Tuesday. If you believed in public education Monday, you ought to believe in it after Tuesday. If you believed in criminal justice reform and police reform and equal protection under the law, regardless of your race, your creed, or your sexuality, your principles did not die. They were not unelected. And we must make America what it must be. There's still a creator spoken of in the scriptures. It guarantees us inalienable rights. So for all those who gloat, be reminded that pride cometh before the fall. To those who want to hate, don't do it, because love and truth are more powerful and more redemptive. To those who didn't vote, don't ever sit out again. To those Democrats, stand your ground 
on principles of justice. Don't go along just to get along. This is not the time for the politics and playing games with the lives of the most vulnerable. This is a time for statesmen and stateswomen, not merely partisan politics. To those who call for healing, remember you can't have healing without treatment. And to the children, don't be what you have seen. Be better than what you've seen this year. Don't be racist. Don't be bullies. Don't be haters. Because you are our now and our future, both at the same time. And to the faithful, it's our time, even the more, to be in the public square, to engage nonviolently wherever we have to for the cause of love and justice. Like Samuel, we cannot mourn forever. We must still be the prophets to this nation, and we must challenge this nation until the day comes that we are one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Be revived. Be redeemed. Be resilient in spite of the rejection. You ain't talking about Islam, but Islam would be a part of what he's talking about. What he's talking about is so much deeper than any component part. It's bigger than King. It's bigger than Kamala. It's bigger than Obama. It's bigger than Jesse. It's bigger than Harriet. It's bigger than Fred Douglas. It's bigger than anything except the collective determination of a people to be free. That's us. And we are going to be free. Every generation is going to keep knocking it down and knocking it down. But I think we just knocked it down in a major way recently, which is why they're lurching for their racist in their racist desperation. But God is on our side. And right is on our side. And democracy is on our side. And that's why I know America is going to be better for our grandchildren and our children's children's children um, going forward. And the hopelessness you see is not being expressed by black people. We've been dealing with scarcity. We've been dealing with poverty. We've been dealing with houselessness. We've been dealing with all of the issues that they now say is a crisis when they got $100 in their pocket to every $1 we got in ours right now. And the state is still on their side. The state is still giving them reparations. Being white in America is reparations. And that's why black people need 400 years of reparations to compensate for all the damage that, that has been done while the state artificially gave white people a sense of superiority, which was nothing but state-guaranteed backing economically, legally, uh, penally, police-wise, banking-wise, living-wise, education-wise. The American state made the white group artificially superior to everybody else. And now it can no longer do it, and that's why they're tearing it down, if you want to understand what you just saw in January. You are seeing a spiritual crisis of the white group in America. Just who are you? Broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find us either. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power. One broadcast at a time.
Thank you for being with us tonight on Our Common Ground. Join us next Saturday night as we talk with you about issues of race. You must know who you are the first thing in the morning. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.